and welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a totally serious podcast about herpetology, where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. I am one of your three co-hosts, Mark D. Schertz. I am a herpetologist and PhD graduate, maybe? And I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Ethan Kosak. Hello, I am a comic artist and illustrator and uh, reptile enthusiast. And Gabriel Ugetto. And I'm a scientific illustrator, paleo artist, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. Hooray! And welcome back to the podcast. Uh, if this is your first time listening, buckle up. Um, we have some good things in store for you. Some interesting news, some hot takes, and uh, some reptile brains for those who are interested. All those things coming later. But first, we're going to go into our first segment, which is Works in Progress, wherein we talk to you about all the things we have going on in our ridiculously busy lives that somehow had enough space for a podcast about a year ago. Yeah. And <laughs> so, uh, I'll go first. I passed my PhD defense. Bravo! Yay! Yay! Congratulations. Congratulations. So for those who don't know, the PhD defense is where the PhD candidate goes into a room, talks for anywhere from like 12 minutes to over an hour about what they did, and then um, are asked really mean questions, sometimes by an open public and then by examiners, and sometimes just by examiners. And mine was a little bit of both. Uh, so I talked for half an hour, and then there were 10 minutes of open questions, wherein the most difficult question... Well, yeah, the most difficult question was from my father, who said... <laughs> <laughs> Why do we care? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Thanks, Ouch. Dad. Real load of support. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Uh, I think he was trying to play the devil's advocate, but he did a very good job, so bravo. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then uh, 30, 30 minutes of intense questions from my five examiners, who were only supposed to be four examiners, but then... It was complicated. One of my main examiners was very, very late to my defense, which uh, was just due to a miscommunication or a lack of checking his email. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, it all went fine. And now I... Everybody can call me a doctor except for myself is basically how it works. I'm not allowed to call myself a doctor until I have the piece of paper in hand. Uh, so... That's you don't have to, but you can, and I don't have to correct you anymore. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that's the main thing that's happened since the last episode. It was crazy. It was ridiculously stressful, and I found out. So I nearly, I'd had a very long time like a panic about when I'd be able to schedule my defense because you had to schedule all these different professors and getting five professors in one room without paying any of them is really hard. So uh, somehow I managed to pull that off, got the defense date, but uh, the, there was an option between having the, de the defense date the next Monday, which was like three days away, or, uh, or a week and a half away, basically. So I spent a lot of time when we had our amazing colleagues here doing all kinds of um, 
we we uh, had pretty much our whole working group here, which was incredible. So um, I think we had seven or eight different members of the Madagascar uh, research focus group uh, of herpetology working on various different manuscripts in different rooms and uh, and all trying to collaborate together. And in the meantime, my brain was like panic. Panic, panic, panic. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, but everything went out fine. And then I had my defense and uh, it went smoothly. And I was really uh, pleased about that. And lots of nice people came. So, yeah, that was that was definitely the biggest thing that's happened to me in a very long time. And um, I was really pleased that I also got a very good grade, which was sort of uh, not, I won't say that I needed it, but I was very desperate to get it. So uh, I would have been really upset if I had not managed to achieve that. So um, yeah, that was the main thing. And then, right, what else happened? I We have a paper that was published, which is uh, called... A new yellow-toed platypalis species, Anura microhylidae cofidine, from the Maran Setra region in northeastern Madagascar, which is a tiny little yellow frog uh, or, or sort of brownish frog with yellow toe tips that we dedicated to my colleague um, Andal. So it's called platypalis Andal. And, um, you know, she's a very small person who researches frogs, and we named a very small frog with yellow toes after her. And uh, she's great. So she's she's uh, she was also here during that intense weekend. Um, and the paper came out just a few days before she was she was here. So uh, it was really nice to see her directly after that as well. And she's doing such amazing things for the reptiles and amphibians of Madagascar, especially the amphibians of Madagascar. And uh, we were very happy to appreciate her and name a frog after her. So I think that's the first time I've named a frog after a friend or close colleague of mine. So, And uh, we also have a new paper that's going to come out on the 14th of August. So keep your eyes out for that. It's coming out in plus one. And it is going to... It contains some hot takes, I will tell you that. It's pretty harsh criticism of the way that the IUCN is currently treating um, species complexes. Hmm. And I think we'll be talking about it probably in the next episode in some detail because it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a hot topic. And this, is a, this is a herpetology diss track, right? This, this is, is a, yeah, yeah, it's a, I mean, it's not, that's, it's, it's not specific to herpetology. It's just generally there is a serious problem with the way that the IUCN manages uh, species complexes. And they, and that they basically ignore the fact that they exist. Yeah. And, they, the, and the importance of taxonomy yeah. as a whole. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that more in more detail in episode 13. You know what, um, you know what August the 14th is? I think I'm almost uh, sure that it is uh, World Lizard Day. I think it is. Is it? I think so. Well, it's bad that we have a paper on two frogs coming out on World Lizard Day. <laughs> I think so. Whoopsies. <laughs> Sorry but, about somehow, that. but somehow on brand. Yeah. Right. It, I suppose. Yeah. 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 It would be nicer um, if World our Lizard Day is August 14th. Because, out. yes, I, I know that because I will tell you in a second why. Do you have that on your calendar? Did I you do. Just... Because I, I plan to do a special <laughs> post for that day with something that is going to be lizard related. So. Well, that is a good idea, and I'm actually going to add it to my calendar shortly. Um, so anyway, you've got some time now to prepare for this new paper coming out on August 14th, 
And yeah, other than that, we've had a few more papers that were submitted or moved through the review process or whatever. But yeah, it's just been, it's a crazy time as always. I'm trying to work on a lot of stuff, getting it finished. And I'm sure we're about to hear the very same sort of story from Gabriel. Go ahead, Gabriel. <laughs> kind of the same. Um, I've been super busy as always. Since the last recording, uh, one of the things that I couldn't mention that I was working in the last recording already was published, which is the... Uh, illustration, the reconstruction that I did of the new troodontid dinosaur from the Mars Information in Wyoming, which is called Hesperornithoides mesleri, or uh, as it's been known for many, many years with the nickname of Lori. Uh, it came out. That was a very stressful time because I had a very short time frame to work on that piece, about two weeks only. And around I have been working on a, on, a, on a concept that I had for like a week, and then I decided, eh, it's not going, <laughs> I have to start all over. I'm not feeling this, it's not coming right. I, I, had, I hit like a major art block at the beginning of that process, probably because I was so concerned about the short amount of time that I had to work on it, that I psyched myself up and it's like, I'm not gonna finish this, I'm not gonna finish this. And so I hit like a major, block at the beginning i love so, that you when you end you do that to yourself and then you end up with even less time exactly exactly <laughs> so i had to i had to but i came up with a concept that i really like and thankfully the authors of the paper really like the new concept and so we decided to go with that and i had to crank it up somehow in a week which is one of the hardest things i've done because originally i've done a, the I have done a piece for my book that I'm preparing that I have told you about, guys, called Journey to the Mesozoic. And they, the authors really liked it, but I had Hesperonithoides perched on a limb, on a low branch of a tree. And the whole point of the paper was that they wanted to uh, focus on, the, on how these early dinosaurs, uh, early dinosaurs with feathers, much like birds, uh, were terrestrials and how a flight probably doesn't have to do anything with arboreality in birds. So, of course, even though they, uh, a terrestrial animal very much could have perched on uh, lower limbs of trees, it felt kind of, you know, wrong to have that in the illustration. Was, so I had to start all over from scratch. Was this the, like, the, the running downhill type hypothesis? Well, yeah, they're also thinking that their their wings and their feathers and their wings and their tail help them maneuver and and change position when they were running because these are all cursorial um, animals that were fast and active and stuff so you know the wings kind of acted as a yeah exactly they they <laughs> kind of acted as a a way to you can't see it but he's doing no his, I will post it so true I, will, I will post this video um, <laughs> so yeah so I, I was working on that uh, it's one of the things that I couldn't mention that I was on the embargo to mention last time uh, it was a lot of fun but also very challenging and I'm very happy with the result apart from that I'm still have, I'm working on a huge project that is still under embargo and I think it will be for a long time at least for a, almost like, yeah, a few more months at least um so that one I cannot talk about, but I, I will be working this month also on some uh, giant sloth, an illustration for some uh, walking giant sloths. Um, I worked, I just finished an illustration of another new species of Mesozoic animal that I cannot discuss because it's still in the embargo, but hopefully it will come out soon. 
Um, and uh, yes, that's what. Oh, and like I was telling uh, Mark and you guys, August 14th is World Lizard Day. And I decided that I'm going to do like a, it's not a very, it's, a, it's more like a, um, a diagram. It's not really an illustration like I'm, like I'm usually used to do, but it's going to be something really interesting for people that like lizards. And it's something that I've talked about here on the podcast before. So it's, I thought it was a great opportunity to show something that's going to probably spark. I, I hope that it sparks some researcher to do something about it once and for all. So expect that. And if you probably guys will hear this before August 14th. So I will, I will tweet that and post that on all my social media on August 14th. Yeah. I mean, we're going to go pretty, pretty nuts on August 14th. It seems, I mean, lizard day, pretty good day to be a herpetology podcast. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so what about you, Ethan? What have you been doing? Uh, mostly just working on commissions. And, uh, I think I said last time I finished the last book gig that I was working with the snot book. And, uh, yeah, that's, I'm, Mostly the same, you know, lots of commission work. Do we get a Sicilian update? Still doing well in their warm box of dirt. <laughs> so, you know, my uh, my supervisor, Frank, he had a Pygomelius, which is a kind of legless, mostly legless skink from Madagascar. And he had it for seven years in a literal box of sand, like no heat cable. No light, just oh, yeah. a water dish and a food dish. And they're the... sitting right next. You want me to? You want me to show you the box of dirt? <laughs> show it to you. <laughs> Reminds me of uh, of uh, Jack Sparrow. I got a jar of dirt. I got a jar of dirt. Oh, it is actually. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just a box of dirt. <laughs> they have a heat pad because they're African species and they like it warm. Although right now they don't really need it. No. Yeah, it's sweltering here. But uh, yeah, they're uh, they're. I just I open the box up once a week. I check, make sure everything's okay. Everyone's <laughs> Are good. you still there? Yep. <laughs> I toss a bunch of worms in there, and they're happy. <laughs> and it's great because you can get worms at bait shops, right? Oh, yeah. So no problem. I actually uh, maybe we can get them to sponsor us. I I uh, buy all my worms from Uncle Jim's Worm Farm. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by <laughs> Uncle Jim's Worm Farm. <laughs> you need worms? We got I'm, worms. I'm, we'll, we'll tag them. We'll tag them in this and see what happens. <laughs> I apologize for doing that bit then. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean Uncle Jim's Worm Farm. Hey, uh, more breaking news. Did we mention that we passed 1,000 followers on Twitter? Yay! Yay! That's you super like, cool. You guys you, like us. You, you really like us. Yeah. <laughs> you obviously must because you're still listening and we haven't gotten to the herpetology yet. So, wow. We've talked about herps. We're fine. That's just the, that's the yeah. end. Bye. <laughs> they could be hate enough episode. I mean, well, before be we, before we go to the next section, I want to say that I might be getting a lizard. Oh yeah, <gasps> yeah. I intentionally, might, might, intentionally, I might be getting. Might be getting. Is this uh, is this like the time you got a shark? 
<laughs> no, no I, I have those are all porch animals I, I keep the porch animals in the porch my sharks my my lizards these are my porch animals I'm genuinely going to ask the same question <laughs> no but I might be I'm thinking getting? about getting up till soon just because I like Phil oh, so much, I might be getting one Austin, of those. Um, Florida does need more of those. <laughs> well, no, I want to get not the, not the grandest because we have those here and I can see those whenever. But I want to get. Yeah, I was going to say, you could catch your own, right? Yeah, but I want to get like a neon one, the small ones. Oh, yeah. Oh, those are like on the Glimmery. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really nice. They are wonderful. And I found They're this really cool. really cool place that has captive bread. Mm-hmm. for generations and generations and that's the way to go and so I, they do um i think they do like like uh parental care like they they uh you can keep them the babies in with the parents yeah they're one of oh. the species that won't eat their young yeah yeah, yeah. that's different for parental care i wasn't thinking you know you're lucky if you don't get eaten so that's fair i mean you know. <laughs> yeah <laughs> now we see how your son is <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, we can... I don't. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it on the show, but I'm going to do it anyway. My um, <laughs> uh, my colleague or two colleagues of mine, one of whom is a, a student of mine, were recently in uh, Réunion for the large um, biogeography conference that was island biogeography conference that was held on uh on la reunion and they that's reunion caught... island for people in english is reunion, reunion island. island sorry yes for, for those of you who yes yeah um they caught and barbecued felsuma grandis oh because they're wow. an invasive species there and are causing serious problems for the native felsumas so uh I, and I apparently they tasted delish they are amazing so, really? I love... i've never and... eaten one but i will say that one of them gave me the worst <laughs> bite i've really? ever had from a lizard they can be pretty yeah it hurts really? it really hurts yeah more than that like a tokai yeah. or something like that yeah it, it grabbed my finger when i was reaching into the cage and it like crocodile rolled on me oh yeah mm, and do that. i still have i have a freaking scar from that mm, like nice i've, I've handled Hardcore. <laughs> way, way, way more intimidating well, lizards. Well, I, I have to ask you guys this, and that's Ethan's worst. What is your worst lizard bite, Mark? Uh, chameleon bite. Yeah, no no comparison. Uh, Kalama Amber. That was a very, very big chameleon, and it just it went to town on my hand. And I mean... <laughs> I was up a tree catching the chameleon. It bit down on my hand. And then for the very first time, possibly in history, there was a flying chameleon. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, it took us a long time to find it again. But but he uh, was yeah, OK, that, right? He that was one really okay. hurt. You didn't he die. was fine. He yeah. was totally fine. Yeah. I mean, they're very robust and, and landing in leaf. <laughs> I hope landing so, yeah. in leaf litter is a very soft landing at the, you know, even for, at the worst of times. For so. me, it was a, a big brown basilisk that really grabbed my thumb and like messed it up did you ah. did it because i mean i've had it where it's like it was my fault because i pulled away and it you know yeah that's always what oh, no, no, he did the same he he kind of did the same as the gecko you were talking about he like did the death roll thing and went, <laughs> and then, and then yeah, went and like it, this if he grabs on and twists you're, yeah it, and then and he shook like his head before i could 
take my finger out. Say, <laughs> That's funny because yeah. every basilisk I've ever seen, I, I mean, I guess you really would have to grab one to get it to be aggressive. Because no, no, no. Just... no, no, no. They are super. They can be. So they, they. If you, so I remember when I was a kid, I caught one, and I released it in the apartment. And I was like, okay, let me catch it. I just wanted to see. I just wanted to see how it, you know, running two legs. And I run after it, and it, it got into a corner, and then oh. it turned around and ran towards me with the mouth open. They, they, if you corner them, they can be really aggressive. Buzzards can be really I, aggressive. No, it's right, like well, frilled lizards. I mean, not that we're, you know, I know we're getting off track here, but I went <laughs> That's to. That's all right. Friend, this is what the listeners are here for. My <laughs> yeah, friend's exactly. shop, who he has is a reptile, you know, an exotic shop. And I'm like, yeah, can I see the basilisk? So I take the basilisk, and immediately it ran out of the cage, and I had to catch it. And that, that's the fastest lizard I've ever seen. Yeah, they're super fast. Bar none. They run faster than it, you know. Aren't did curly it. tails also crazy fast? Yeah. 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 Not, but I, well, I, I, they can get really fat, so they don't, they are not the, the most. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Maybe but not you, the floor. For me, the fastest, the, lizard that I, the, the fastest lizard that I've ever seen are probably a toss-up between some teats that like small teats like whiptails. They're super fast, and also I, I was T- in T- San Diego. Tigulets? No, no. <laughs> and then and then also um, zebra tail lizards in the uh, South. Yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah. are insane. Like yeah. it's like a roadrunner. It's like boom. and then actually, I'll say going when I was in the Carolinas when I go down there to go herping. Those damn five line skinks are freaking. Yeah, skinks are. I think skinks for me are probably. But skinks is because no, they're, they're agile. They're they're you know they're they're. But in you terms really of pure speed to catch to catch the. I mean, like I I've reserved. I've just said I'm, I'll photograph you. I'm not going to try to grab you because they <laughs> they're next to impossible. There are two categories. They're 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 lizards that are fast. And agile, but also they are fast, and they don't let you get close by any means. Like um, agamids yeah. are excellent at doing that, not getting, not letting you get close, unless you're in a car. But if you're like on, on foot, they don't let you get close. <laughs> yeah. you got to run yeah. them down. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. Like there are some geckos that are insanely quick. Well, there you have the the component of them also being able to just run straight up. Yeah, they're also going, like, (laughs) it's not just straight either. Yeah. (laughs) And also, back to the topic of bites, your platus bites hurt a surprising amount considering how little muscle they have behind that jaw. Because they Mm. have so many teeth. Your platus have the most teeth of all vertebrates. It's a lot of teeth. (laughs) (laughs) I have not, actually, I have not been bitten by... Europlatus, although I I would imagine that that like one of the big gigantic. It's like a mousetrap. Yeah. It's really yeah. like a mousetrap because it's it's a huge mouth, huge gape, and then yeah. it's like whack. <laughs> I've been bitten by tokes before, and that was not. Oh yeah, right. yeah. Not tokes also are apparently but very painful. That's because they don't let go. Uh huh. And, and they do have huge jaw muscles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was a teenager, I had a toke gecko that I literally used to clean its cage. I would put a sock in there, and it would latch onto the sock, and I would just hang the sock up while it was attached to me, clean the cage out, and put him back in. Very useful. Yes. Very effective. Well, okay, that was quite a digression, but we're, we're back. We're back on track. We're back on track. It's time to move on 
two. Breaking news. Dun, dun, dun. This was a more a more dancey version of the song. This was a more dancey. There was Breaking a you could it All was the a real data that's fit to print. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. Thanks for staying with us. <laughs> We're gonna move on to the nudes. Um, all right. The first paper is. By Frank Glove et al. Frank Glove is my supervisor, but I'm not a co-author on this paper, um, or like one of full, my two supervisors. I like the full disclosure there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but it's actually a really cool paper. So this paper was published in the Science of Nature, which is I think we've mentioned this journal on the podcast before. It used to be called Naturwissenschaften. But nobody could pronounce that, so they had no, to change. Nobody could pronounce that, so they did change. Um, yeah. Um, so they changed it to the science of nature, which is technically, I suppose, a translation of Naturwissenschaften. But anyway, so the paper is called Integrative Evidence Confirms New Endemic Island Frogs and Transmarine Dispersal of Amphibians Between Madagascar and Mayotte, open brackets, Comoros Archipelago, close brackets. And this is one of those papers that we were discussing with Ethan before that he said that amphibians couldn't disperse through. Right, exactly. Oh yeah, that's why we were talking about it, yeah. This is a really, this is one of those really rare cases where we have a real confirmation that these frogs have gotten to an island that is volcanic, so it's not like continental crust or anything, um, by transoceanic dispersal. And I'm going to keep the whole thing real short because I wrote a whole blog post about this on my blog. You can go to markshirts.com and it'll be on the front page if you're listening to this relatively recently to when this comes out. And if not, you can go to, uh, yeah, you can just look through the blog and you'll find it. Um, <laughs> just Google it. Uh, markshirts.com slash archives slash 4159. Um, anyway. <laughs> The paper is, well, the, the, I mean, yeah, the, the discovery is kind of cool. It actually happened uh, some 16 years ago, 2003. There was the previous paper where they announced that they had uh, realized that these frogs on Mayotte were not conspecific with the ones in Madagascar, but were instead um, separate and very distinct species. And um, because previously it had been thought that they were um, transported there by humans, but actually they are very distinct from the things that they, uh, or at least one of them is very distinct from the thing it looks most like on Madagascar, uh, the thing to which it's most closely related on Madagascar. And uh, we think that they've been there for um, several million years and have diverged quite uh, distinctively. What's the uh, what's the thinking on how they got there? Are we talking rats? So, yeah. Yes, yeah. essentially yes. It's so the wraps. idea is, so the, these two frogs, one of them uh, breeds by laying its eggs on sort of leaves over uh, the water, and That's... then the tadpoles fall into the water. So tree and frog. the other one, key, right? Yeah. Sorry. That's that's the other key that they have to be uh, frogs that do not have aquatic um, larvae. They, like, but they or, do have aquatic no, I mean larvae. That they don't have aquatic eggs. eggs. Like, you don't, the eggs don't have well, to be laid in water. That's the thing, because the other species, which is now called Bufus nauticus, 
does have a, a, aquatic eggs. It lays its eggs oh. into puddles, but it lays them in puddles, like temporary, real temporary puddles. Um, and these things are found. We find them along like muddy pools in pat on on paths and stuff. So they're they're basically able to lay their eggs wherever. So as as flexible as it can be while still having aquatic eggs, which is quite good. Um, and this area, so the north of Madagascar gets hit by cyclones relatively frequently. And in particular, um, this year, there was a cyclone that swept from the north of Madagascar through the Comoros and slammed into Mozambique and made one of the worst cyclones that Mozambique has ever experienced. And I was in Madagascar when that cyclone ripped past. It wasn't bad on Madagascar itself, but it became much, much worse as it went further west. Um, but a slightly different but very, very similar storm could easily be envisaged moving very large uh, uh, chunks, you know, these, these debris clumps of, um, that contained maybe a few eggs of some kind of frogs from Madagascar 200 kilometers west across the ocean I mean, that, toward Mozambique. That stuff just fascinates me because as someone who keeps frogs and the shit I have to go through to get them to breed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, to imagine, yeah. you know, debris blown out to sea, landing in the Comoros and hatching successfully. Yeah. Your probability but, is real low. But I guess low enough that over millions of years exactly. it's going to happen. And I think that's the that's the thing. So I was recently looking at this other paper that we didn't cover in a previous episode but probably should have on Trachylepis um, biogeography. So the entire genus Trachylepis, which is a huge genus, very widespread in the Mabuyan skinks. And um, the Trachylepis on the Comoro Islands is called uh, Trachylepis comorensis. And I thought for a long time that it must somehow be closely related to the Trachylepis on Madagascar because we have a very large radiation of them. Uh, but no, it's actually more closely related, I think, to the African ones. But the closest relative to the Trachylepis sitting on the Comoro Islands on the east coast of Africa is from an island sitting in the Gulf on the west side of Africa. So somehow <laughs> these skinks have either crossed the entire midline of Africa or once sailed around the Cape of Good Hope up the other side. Neither, either of those seems extremely ridiculous. improbable <laughs> yeah, yeah. but given I mean, enough you've time got the, you've got anything is probable do, when it comes do we know how, how, what's their uh, time of differences like what when where did they diverge from each other yeah. relatively recently like oh. within the last six million years oh. eight million years well so it could have no been that there's no biogeographical well it could have been that the other species had a, a, a mainland <laughs> distribution for a long time and then it, it, that's it the other extinct. that's the alternative yeah. hypothesis but either way these this this connection is super unlikely because you'd have to have a huge extinction across middle africa um for it to be the different fragments of one right. the previous distribution nobody tell range. the creationists <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's very crazy, but it's the kind of thing where you're like, oh, well, you know, 
if neither you give it the, enough yeah, the, time. The two, the two options you presented, neither of them make sense. So that's well, no. it's like that exactly. famous uh, skink that I'm forgetting the name now in in Brazil, which uh, the, it's another Mabuyin skink, uh, which is the closest relatives are in Africa, and he has a recent uh, sort of a recent uh, uh, divergent time. So yeah. It, yeah, it means that somehow he crossed the Atlantic. I need our, our ancient aliens meme guy again, you know, Jim no Thalman. Let me my head up, yes. <laughs> Jimmy's. Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, this is a fascinating thing. These frogs are used a lot for calibrating uh, phylogenies. Probably shouldn't be because we don't really fully know how old Mayotte is. And also because using islands as calibration points is iffy at best. But anyway, that's a discussion for another time. It's a cool paper. You should check it out and go and, and have a look at my blog post on it if you fancy reading some, um, some thoughts of mine. Our next paper has nothing whatsoever to do with herpetology. <laughs> Except in the extent of our discussion of it. Are you ready? This paper... Has, has created something of a furor on, uh, on Twitter. It's by Sarah Mayoretto et al. Published in the Deutsche Entomologische Zeitschrift. Drink. Let's drink. drink. <laughs> um, and the title is A Revolutionary Protocol to Describe the Undescribed Hyperdiverse Taxa and Overcome the Taxonomic Impediment. And basically what this paper has done is they have described around 40 species of wasps, um, ichneumonid wasps, without giving them any, any morphological description at all. So all they have provided is, are DNA the, so sequences. So they're, they're also redefining the term revolutionary then. Yeah, because <laughs> this is actually something that has been done before and was... <laughs> before greeted with a lot of mm, no um this is the taxonomic equivalent of coughing into your arm when you you know this is yeah, well this is terrible so i'm sorry this, this is terrible this paper is terrible. is bonkers on a number of levels there are already 50 species in the genus of wasps that they are describing and they mentioned one of them in the paper they didn't Jesus, compare uh, them uh, at uh, all with These any species outside. Wasps, right? Yes, they're little parasitic wasps, yeah. Yeah. They didn't compare them at all with any of the species that are outside of Costa Rica. <laughs> and like, okay, so we're not here to talk about wasps. We are here to talk about the precedence that this kind of shit sets. Now, I was try I tried to be very guarded about my discussion of this on Twitter because I don't want to get into big shit show and I don't want to like shame people for publishing things when they're just trying to express their opinion. On the other hand, this has uh, it sets a bad precedent because yes. people think that this can, you can get away with this and therefore you don't have to be an expert to be a taxonomist. Plus, we have already which, precedent with this kind of crap happening in herpetology. Yes. And we have worked so hard to get away from the history of bad description. And now what they've done, they provided... Literally, one photo of the lateral aspect of one specimen per species, and then some information on which base pairs differ in a single mitochondrial gene. That's terrible. And that is the only evidence they've given for these species descriptions, without comparing them at all to anything that exists in the literature. 
So there are some people who are talking about repressing these new names because uh, what the fuck? Yeah. But, you know, we sort of have to deal with the problem head on. Somebody is going to have to go through the painstaking work of going through all these species and re-describing them if they want to apply those names again, but they need a formal description. You cannot have, you cannot just leave these species. So if somebody's working and another person comes and wants to work on a species they find, what is they gonna, what are they gonna use to compare it with? Just a picture yeah. that makes no sense. Yeah. No, I mean, this is, it, it, it's really unacceptable. And um, I mean, is we'll it, see what the backlash is going to be, but. Is, is this kind of thing more likely, do you think, in entomology circles? Because there's just so, you know, like you look at, you know, like with beetles and there's just like more yeah. beetles than there are, you know. I think, well, <laughs> sort of. I think they also, this this paper, you know, they mentioned in the title, the taxonomic impediment. The taxonomic impediment is basically, there's so much still to do. And so little time to do it and so few people working on it. But this is not a way to solve this problem. My favorite thing was that Alex Hall tweeted, the real impediment to taxonomy is funding. And that is the absolute truth. Like, you're not going to solve problems by making bad taxonomy decisions like this. The way that you solve the problem is making positions, employing and training taxonomists and then actually valuing the taxonomic science yeah, and, itself. And because, and, and let me just say also that this can cause actually more problems in taxonomy because Much we more. don't know how many of these pieces are actually, there's no way of testing them. So people how, are going to spend years having to, to clear up yes, this mess. Exactly. So uh, this is already causing more problems. So instead of creating less problems, they actually created more problems in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and, and to answer your question, Ethan, um, yes, I think this is more likely in insects or, you know, generally in invertebrates or in plants than it is in, um, in, in vertebrates, especially in herpetology. But, uh, you know, a few years ago... I can imagine an entomologist just looking at the sheer number of... Right. Possible species right. And, and it's just hundreds and it, hundreds you know? and hundreds. I mean, there are, what is it like 2,000, 3,000 species of Drosophila alone? Yeah. And they're like, okay, I understand. You have a problem there, but that problem is not under overcome by ignoring <laughs> right. morphology right. altogether right. and yeah, ignoring yeah. everything that we've done for the last hundreds of years um, in terms of taxonomy. But I think that people, especially people working on miniaturized frogs and, and dwarf frogs, like puddle frogs, um, I think it's really easy to think, to, to look at these things and be like, oh, okay, well, we have 80 things here. They look super similar in terms of their external morphology, but genetics says they're very, like, they're all separate units. Let's just give them all names. But if you don't, like, probably in frogs at least, you have some kind of bioacoustic differences that are actually there that you can actually use if you go through the effort of gathering that data. And, you know, we need to have some kind of keep some kind of standard. And I think what they've done here is they've seen what are the minimum things that we can do to satisfy the, work I can do the code. Yeah, yeah? Well, and exactly. This is What's the minimum work we can put already, in? Already there is a lack. Of, there's a lot of lazy morphology going around and there are a lot of bad descriptions out there. A lot of people that do not do their work as they should and their descriptions suck. So. 
you know, this is already a problem to be adding to this. Well, is, I yeah. mean, could you, I mean, to me, it sounds like you could present that not as a serious final product, but to say, this is a sketch of what we think goes where. Exactly. You know? And that is why we have these things called BIN, which is barcode identification numbers. We have candidate species numbers that have been used now really widely, but also, I mean, they were basically pioneered in the reptiles, in the, in the frogs of Madagascar. Um, these ways that we can create identifiers for anchoring our knowledge as it grows about a species without necessarily coming already prematurely to the conclusion that these are distinct species. That's, that's literally okay, so works in progress. Let me ask you this. Yeah. So I, I'm surprised that this went through peer review and I'm surprised the reviewers let this go because when you publish a species, it is supposed to have a description and a diagnosis. I don't under, that's like a 101. You should not be yeah. able to publish a species without that. Well, I think that the because the code stipulates that there must be identifying characters, there's a little bit of a gray zone as to what like it it has to, the code stipulates that it has to use words and now there's this discussion going on on Taxicom um as to whether or not base pairs count as words and numbers count as words because all they've just done is like site two seven six t site. 289GG, like that kind of that kind of crap as the <laughs> diagnosis of the species, no, no, no. which does not help anyone. So we're actually and, stretching um, the definition of what a word is. Here. Uh, yeah, yeah, and no. yeah. This is a major um, no. Yeah. <laughs> no. And I, I think that we're coming to the problem where you know the the code is very uh, non-constructional so it doesn't tell you what your description must be composed of because they want to give people freedom but without having structure freedom is completely meaningless so you know if if this is what you're setting as your standard your minimum standard for what a species is then you have you open the door for all kinds of bad sloppy yeah, science and, like and, this. And what I was saying is that I'm surprised that the editors let this go through because I've been through the to the reviewing process. I know how hard they can be. How can they? I'm surprised. I mean, I'm honestly surprised. This is they wanted to be provocative. They're, they've done this probably just to be provocative. What's unfortunate is that they've made a huge mess in the process of being so provocative, and they did it at the utter like disregard for all of the previous people working on the field in the past. And I mean, obviously we're not here to talk about wasps, but people have been working on this genus for, it must be decades already. And to just pretend that those species names are, are, are irrelevant for your descriptions is not good science. It's no, not good and, science. And let me just say also, you must agree with me, Mark. There is this tendency for people not to want to get involved into taxonomy from morphological point of view, which is a really bad thing because we need good morphological descriptions. We still need oh, them. We do. Yeah. Regardless of whatever advantages we get from molecular and genetics and stuff, you need to have good morphological descriptions. And there's a lot of people that, and we've talked about this before, have zero clue of morphological taxonomy and they create huge messes by just focusing on the genetic yeah. data. So, yeah. 
Yeah, we have to. I mean, the whole point of the description is to highlight not just what is consistent with everything that we know, but the differences specifically. And that you just don't get by looking at a photo because you can compare two photos in like, you know, one of those search images that you get in magazines or whatever. And you see, OK, well, these things do have differences, but are those differences at species level? You need some knowledge of the actual group to understand that. Yeah. So I think we should move on. Yeah. But just to say, don't do this. <laughs> Please stop. Get the spray bottle. Yeah. Exactly. Bad. So our next paper is uh, one that has appeared in early view in Herpetologica, but unfortunately I could not get access to it in any way, Sci-Hub included. Uh, so I can only read from the abstract, but it seems like it's going to be quite interesting. It's by Bjorn Lardner et al. Um, and the title is Optimizing Walking Pace to Maximize Snake Detection Rate, a Visual Encounter Survey Experiment. I was quite keen on this study because... I am very bad at finding snakes and I want to know how fast I should be walking in order to maximize my encounter rate. And so they did this. I'm not actually sure where, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that it was on Guam because the study species were uh, Boiga irregularis, which are the brown tree snakes, which are, of course, crazy common on Guam. Which is another variant from this study that it's interesting. Because snakes invasive, are never in yeah. huge numbers. Yeah, They're never in huge. They're an invasive species, right? They're crazy invasive species. Yeah. They've this wiped the out that, pretty like, much everything native on the island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one that like hides in plane landing gear and... Yeah, which is yeah. also skews, I think, in my opinion, the how easy you're bound to find one of them instead of in a natural environment where snakes are noticeably difficult to find. For sure. For sure. But on the other hand, you know, snakes have a certain like species specific flight distances on average and uh, getting a sense for how quickly you should move in order to um, maximize success rate along that with that flight distance in mind is useful even if you're working in a relatively unnatural setting. So here they found, I mean, they didn't specify in the abstract what a medium, a fast, and a slow pace really constituted. But uh, if you move at a fast, fast pace, you find 63% more snakes than you do at a slow pace. I'm having all these mental images of people <laughs> running, running through the through jungle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's one. But there's actually, one. <laughs> this really, uh, this really matches my expectation because <laughs> when I when I go looking for snakes specifically, and I'm walking relatively slowly to find them, I tend to not find them. But if I'm walking relatively quickly along a path anyway, then I tend to encounter snakes. And I do think that because the you're you're matching the flight distance against your pace of encounter. If you're walking up to them, because they, they start to flight at a certain distance away, you're closing that distance more quickly the faster you're walking, essentially. Well, we did start off this episode by talking about how you can run down lizards with your car. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Don't run over lizards. I don't know. Just I'm, inter I'm very, very, very interested uh, to read this paper because I don't think I fully grasp how well, I, this is make a lot of sense. 
I don't. Well, Gabriel, uh, we'll have to go <laughs> run through the woods. Yeah, I, and I mean, conduct our own experiments. I, I maybe it's that I have never paid attention, but snakes are. How can I say this? It's like you. Uh, they require a lot more proactive. Uh, usually, they require a lot more proactive looking for than lizards. You encounter lizards easier, and you can observe them easier. Snakes require you to, you know, flip stuff and, you know, turn... No, but they're talking about snakes moving away from the path, essentially, like, or or up in the trees or whatever. Yeah, but, that, not, but what I'm saying is that They're not involving any cover objects. That's such a small number of the snakes you find that how do you quantify that and make it a meaningful, unless it's like In a, my experience in the rainforest, at least in Madagascar, you find 90% of the snakes on the move. You barely ever find snakes underneath the cover object. Oh, it's not like that in the neotropics. Yeah, yeah, well... I mean, it's not yeah. like that here either. I mean, I when I'm looking for snakes, I tend to go where I know unless, I've already seen snakes. In order to find yeah. them. Well, yeah. it all depends on how uh, you usually find them. There are people that go on cars when the night is, you know, but yeah, that, that's right. not what they're talking yeah, yeah, here. Yeah. And, yeah. and if no. you're in no. the forest, uh, I don't remember that you, yeah, you see them in trails when you're walking sometimes, but I don't think, at oh, least in yeah, the neotropics. I, mean, I agree, North, North America at least, I mean, the majority of snakes that I have seen, I've found by lifting by up flipping. yeah and in know. the neotropics yeah. either for me i mean i i don't remember yeah i've seen many snakes on trails but i don't think that that's the, the majority or makes it a, like a different number in the head mm. that's why i'm interested in yeah. reading the paper because interesting well uh, in def- in madagascar i would definitely say that we find the vast majority of snakes on the move i like mm. mostly we find blind snakes by flipping things but uh we don't have so most yeah, of the snakes in Madagascar find are something like, that's during the night or during the day or both? Both. Yeah. I mean, at night, obviously, they're hunting. Yeah. Uh, mostly. But the even during the day, mostly find them active. Sometimes we find them inside tree holes or whatever, but for the most part. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, so as none of us have really been able to read this paper because it's not yet uh, fully available. Oh, well. Uh, We move on. Uh, The next paper is quite a cool one because flying geckos. Um, It's by Lee Grismer et al. published in Zootaxa. And it's titled Geographic Structure of Genetic Variation in the Parachute Gecko, Tychozoan Lyonotum Anadale. 1905 across Indochina and Sunderland with descriptions of three new species. So not just one or two new flying geckos, but three new flying geckos, which is really cool. Uh, I love flying geckos. You don't geckos. get yeah, flying awesome. geckos a lot. Yeah. They're, they're one of the coolest looking yeah. geckos. I don't know, you know if you're familiar with them, everybody, but they're like giant webbed feet and these parachute fringes. And fringes the all along the tail. Yeah, the tail's fringes. Yeah, fringes yeah. yeah the, the tail is really unusual. It's got like it's not just fringed along the whole side like Europlatus or Saltuarius or whatever, but it's fringed in sort of like waves. Yeah, so it has lobes. It, it looks along almost it. like a, like the way that we depict you know Archaeopteryx's tail. Like if yeah. you imagine those flaps or feathers, I always think that they look like a fern. The, the yeah. tail looks like a yeah. fern. You know, it does look like a fern. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it does look like a fern. True. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're um, they're really cool geckos, and I was thrilled to see new species described because um, I suspected for a while that there must be more. How do you, um, how do you say that uh, species name? Kikakterbang. I would I would use a hard K, a, a, hard, a hard C sound. So Kikakterbang. Kikakterbang. Because it's found in in um, Indonesia, and I guess the the A N G is then an ong sound, and then I don't know about the rest, but I would guess uh, Taikazon Kikakterbang or so. And then we have uh, Kabkaben, which is from Laos, and Tokihos, which is from Thailand, uh, and Chiang Mai, and Cambodia, and Vietnam. And now Lyonotum is restricted to Myanmar and eastern India, and which is really cool. No, West yeah. Laos, too. I've only ever seen Tigazoon Kuli. Kuli? Kuli? Cooley, yeah, 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 which yeah. is a species that's usually in the in the pet trade. In the pet trade. Yes, it is. It is. Um, but I guess I don't know how many species there were until now. Um, but I will find out in one second. But apparently, it's a small there are genus, right? It must be like twenty species at most. Yeah, I'm surprised how many there are actually. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10 species. Hmm. So with these, it would 10 be species. 13. And actually several of them described relatively recently. We've got one in 2009, one in 1999, 2016. Well, because I, uh, it's probably that one of these are co- species complexes. A lot of those probably I, are species complexes. Uh, well, that's yeah. what I was going to say. I know someone who recently who has bred them in captivity, uh, Cooley. And, hmm. uh, but I'm wondering, you know, like over the years, how many people have tried and failed because they had actually different species from different yeah it depends on if they were working with wild caught uh, individuals i guess well but they would yeah, yeah i, mean, I, I would possible. assume they would be and just you know i think that's a common thing that happens where you get yeah you know <laughs> you end up with different species and you don't know it nobody knows it because nobody's done that work yet yeah i think it's really interesting also the convergence between um, the Tychozoan and some of like, like especially Europlatus peachmani, mm-hmm. because they're also they also have very strongly webbed or or almost webbed feet. They have fringed tails. They have similar camouflage, um, but nobody has ever documented a Europlatus jumping from a tree or anything. So I think it's interesting that you see sort of the the pre adaptation versions of some of these things in a lot of geckos yeah you know that's true like uh well you know we talked about crested geckos crested geckos have that what almost looks like the start of a patagium uh skin flap behind the legs Mm -hmm. and it's the same yeah the same with the with the turnip tail geckos in the neotropics tecodactylus they have this web thick feet and they yeah. do jump, and when they jump, they so they all they had they spread their toes really. Yeah. They really yeah. sometimes really high on trees, so that yeah. it makes sense. I think a lot of geckos kind of go that route. Yeah, and there have but, been good studies on geckos' ability, even non-flying geckos' ability to control their um, trajectory in flight. Yeah, but so. Tycho Zoon definitely the most 
the most. Oh, uh, yeah. He has all these crazy adaptations for it. Yeah. Wow, some of the species have super long tails. I was not aware of how long their tails can be. It's the gecko version of a sugar glider. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Anyway, okay, so that's cool. Uh, congratulations to the Grismers for that new paper and all the other authors, of course. All right. Next, next, next. Oh, this next paper is so impressive. It is by Andrea Villa and Massimo Delfino, published in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society, and it's entitled A Comparative Atlas of the Skull Osteology of European Lizards, Reptilia squamata. This paper is probably an entire book of, uh, you know, like a monograph of the Zoological Journal. I'm not sure, but... It goes through, bone by bone, a comparative description of each of the major uh, reptile, uh, major lizard groups in Europe and compares them. And then at the end, they have a key for every bone to identify which group of lizards you're looking at. This is the kind of paper I like. This is incredible. That must have been... Having done something very similar to this... Uh, that's a hell of a lot of work. This, I mean, this is way more comprehensive than I've, anything I've ever done. Uh, I was blown away by this paper because it is, it has so much detail to it. The figures are absolutely beautiful. I was really surprised they didn't use micro CT scans. So these are actual photographs of the bones comparative, uh, com comparative and you have uh, really nice labeling and really detailed descriptions on everything. And um, so, so someone had to clean and prepare all these bones is what you're. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess that they were probably maybe they were already available from a museum collection or maybe they did some of the preparation themselves. But the main bulk of the work was probably in the writing of this paper because it is super Super impressive. And this is one of those papers that would be useful not only to people working with lizards or, or reptiles in, in, in Europe, but around the world. Just because around of the, the world. Yeah. And fossils, especially because, yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, Germany is is um, excellent at prepare at, at producing both ancient fossils and, you know, ichthyosaurus and whatever. But we also have super recent fossils that are like 5 million or 2 million years old. Not really 2 million, but 5 million years old. And, um, and those are all of represent or like groups represented within Europe. Like we have chameleons in Germany. Um, and this kind of key allows us to, or gives us a much better, uh, a tool to identify what those recent fossils might represent. It's so yeah, cool. But also around so the world, impressive. because uh, honestly, even the osteology of a lot of extant groups is super poorly known. So uh, yeah. this is extremely important. Yeah, totally. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm so impressed by that. So go check out that paper. It is probably the coolest paper that we have to talk about today. Um, and actually, we've only got two more papers to talk through, so we're getting close to our next segment. Um, our next paper is by Natalie Finer and Natalie J. Wood, uh, published in Evolution and Development, entitled Lizards Possess the Most Complete Tetrapod Hox Gene Repertoire Despite Pervasive Structural Changes in Hox Clusters. Uh, 
<gasps> okay. So I think I've explained in episode one, maybe, and some other episodes what hox genes are. But just to give you the lowdown, because you maybe this is the first time you're listening and already you're falling asleep and <laughs> you want something more to go to sleep to. Um, Hox genes are genes involved in early pattern uh, production across the entire body of the organism. So they tend to be expressed in stripes of the of the body. So the first and they exhibit this crazy feature called collinearity. So the order that they occur on the genome, so literally the order of Hox1, Hox2, Hox3, Hox4, corresponds to the order in which they are expressed in the body. So one comes at the head, two comes around them like further down the body, three comes further down the body, four, five, six, etc. And there are these huge families of Hox genes. And uh, Hox stands for homeobox which is not more helpful. Um, but they are probably the, the most important genes for uh, laying down the patterning of the organism. The early, and like the regulation and the, development of the embryo, correct? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yes, exactly. Especially the very early stages of that embryo. And they're, so, they're really basic to like... Everybody. All things. All, all, and all living things. All animals. Yeah, all, all animals. Yeah. And there are even hawks paralogs in plants that are like very similar genes but don't work exactly the same way and i don't want to get myself into a subject that's too far from my field of expertise <laughs> but um at least within all animals hox genes are certainly present even in the ones that don't that have radial symmetry so you don't it's not even bilateral organisms hox huh. genes are still there so extremely ancient and they kept doing these things where they would expand and uh, sometimes whole groups, whole one chromosome essentially of these Hox genes would duplicate itself and then they would get uh, used for different purposes. So, for example, in the development of the early limb bud, so when the, when the limbs are developing, Hox genes are also involved in laying down the polarity of which bit is the front and which bit is the back of the limb which eventually determines which is your thumb and which is your pinky. So you have all kinds of uh, crazy things that Hox genes are involved in. Now, in vertebrates, various different things have happened to the Hox gene family. Um, I think very early on, there was a, giant, a duplication of the entire 16 or so genes. And then so there are large sets of Hox genes in vertebrates. But some, several of them have been lost in mammals and uh, birds. And now what this study has done is looking at the genomes of lizards and snakes, or I could just say lizards, 17 different lizards, um, for their hox genes. And what they found is that they have a very complete repertoire of these hox genes. And what was quite cool is that the snakes in particular are missing two hox genes, both of which are probably involved in limb development. So one of the ones that he looked at in more detail in this study, which is, uh, it's called hox C1, and um, it had not been characterized in vertebrates before, but what they found is that it's involved in the development of parts of the brain, in the neural tube, and most importantly, probably, in the limb buds of lizards. 
So losing a gene like that can have obvious effects for snakes and their ability to develop limbs. Um, and I wonder also, because it's involved in the neural tube and, and um, dorsal root ganglia, so other things to do with the neurology, if that affects the way that snakes are um, producing their necks and the, and the rest of the, um, Can, what happens of the neurology we, what happens of these if snakes, you turn that back on? of these animals. That's a really good question. Um, probably not a lot because you also need all of the machinery that's probably that like if you lose the gene, you might lose all of the machinery that that was involved in working it's with it. It's not enough to just flip the thing, the switch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not a case where the gene is still there and the activator is gone. So because my dream you could then of reactivate it. And... It's going to have to wait. <clears throat> it's well, not like what they usually it's... do with the, the, the with the birds and dinosaurs like uh, turning on the switch uh, is that the yes. actual gene is gone there's, there's oh, nothing, yeah, nothing exactly. to turn so on you uh, you yeah. lack the light bulb there's nothing to turn on but <laughs> if you can if you can characterize the pathway better there's po the possibility that you could crisper into the genome like not it. only the gene but also the switch and the wiring that is involved in making that gene go somewhere and you know, I think that it would be a long way along the line before you'd be able to say, okay, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to turn legs back on in these pythons. Um, but more likely, you'd be able to be like, okay, we're going to turn legs off in these skinks. So, or in these okay. anoles, probably, because that's where CRISPR has been developed so far. So, um, Gabriel is shaking his head because of the way that I pronounce the anole. No, no, no. Apart from that, legless anole. Yes, exactly. Apart from that, that's what I was imagining. Yes, I don't know. There's terrible. some tree anoles that are very, like, very stretched. The twig anoles, maybe, but I just imagine like a green anole with no. <laughs> just imagine a Cuban night anole that's just like. It's just no. It's just a head That's and it's also a very long tail. Yeah, well, they're mostly mouth anyway. <laughs> yeah, they would look real weird. <laughs> anyway, so this is a this is a really cool paper. Um, I recommend if you're interested in developmental biology of lizards and their genomes, go check it out. Um, yeah, and we're gonna move on now to the final paper. Which, uh, yeah, it's by Vidan et al. Uh, oh, I should say, I should say the first name. I've said the first name for everybody else. It's by Inav Vidan et al. Published in the Journal of Biogeography. And it's called The Global Biogeography of Lizard Functional Groups. So. <laughs> <laughs> this paper has tried, so it, it is, um, Essentially, I think we talked on one of the early episodes. I'm sorry. I'm not like the Common Descent podcast. I can't tell you which episode we talked about what thing. I don't know how they do I can't even remember it. what I had for breakfast this morning. I Actually, don't know how they do it. They, and, you it's know, like, I used to think that they that they read what episode it was. I thought but so, But I too, did the episode no. with them. I, and they don't look at anything. They just know what episode they said everything. I don't know. <laughs> they have the most prodigious memory on earth. It is yeah, very we're, impressive. Know, we're not that well, together. No. Don't expect that standard from us. No. Yes, you might have been able to tell from how well structured we do our podcast. <laughs> we are not at that level. Um, anyway, this paper is based on the uh, database published by 
um, Shai Myrie alone called the, the traits of lizards of the world variation around a successful evolutionary design, um, which contains only lizards. And therefore this paper analyzes only lizards by only lizards. I mean to say it does not include any snakes in the analysis, which are lizards and it's super arbitrary. Which are lizards. And yes, the decision to not include snakes is a very arbitrary one. Um, so what this paper has done is they've looked at the distribution of all of the lizards on Earth, not including snakes. And they have tried to reduce those lizard components across all of the the different um, biogeographical ranges uh, or, or areas on Earth to a number of small functional groups. I think and, I think I see a problem here. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, uh, yeah. May I say, <laughs> well, the groups are also slightly arbitrary. The groups yeah. are a little bit arbitrary, but they use a method. So th they use what's called archetypal analysis, which I'm sorry, I can't explain to you because I certainly don't understand it myself. Um, but they use archetypal analysis in order to deduce what are the main groups that exist in every habitat. Now the or or in every in every biogeographical region. So that's basically if we think about our um, it, it's basically what a morphotype is. So if we look at the frogs of any particular area in the world, they are going to fall into one of a small number of morphotypes because frogs only do so many different things. It's like fourteen different morphotypes or so. So. Here, they've tried to reduce those morphotypes, but they've made what is, in my opinion, the mistake of using a specific feature of that morphotype or of that um, what they call archetype or ecological strategy to define represent it. it. To define it, which yeah, is a problem. So, because, to define yeah. it. So they, they define seven of these archetypes, which are scansorial, terrestrial, nocturnal, herbivorous, fossorial, large, and semi-aquatic. And, and here... Pal and paladin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here we have the problem that if you read this list, if you don't read any further into the paper, you get the impression that these are somehow uh, mutually... supposed to be somehow mutually exclusive or something, or that these are like the main groups of animals that you would find in any place. But... You can be terrestrial and nocturnal. In fact, a lot of things are. And you can be herbivorous and large. And you can be herbivorous, large, and semi-aquatic. Or scansorial. And, or, yeah. And, so and we, we, you, we discussed this a little bit before we started recording. And I, one of the things that immediately came to mind for both me and Gabriel was a lot of lizards don't have the same diet over the course of their lifespan. Exactly. And I don't think this mm -hmm. accounts for any of that. Diet changes ontogenetically and also... Like Which I was is not saying, included in the database. Yeah. No, and also uh, you have lizards that are that can be prim primarily diurnal, but also are active frequently, not, not very rarely or seldomly, frequently right. at night. And all these are a good example. So, yeah. you know... Yeah. 
Or I, well, I, have, I think we I said before, law. iguanas are a good example of a. That's something that everybody considers a herbivorous lizard, yeah. but but young iguanas eat mostly insects. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at their their maps, it's also a little bit baffling to see like how some of the groups have been classified. I mean, Australia is flagged as a giant hotspot for everything except for semi-aquatic and scansorial species. And like, of course, uh, in most of Australia, there's not a lot of area in which to be scansorial or semi-aquatic. There's just not a lot around. Um, But in every other aspect, Australia is like way off the charts in terms of the density of the of the different things. Um, But but anyway, to go back to that issue with these with the names for these specific groups, um, we should highlight the fact that those are just ways that they are characterizing them. So uh, something that is the or the the major strategy they call scansorial is actually things that are small and diurnal and carnivorous and scansorial. It's a whole profile. It's a whole profile. It's not just the one word that they're using to define it. And I think that's really misleading. And um, I don't know whose idea this was, um, but I've heard, I've seen very similar things in uh, the psychological literature and um, where where people are looking at uh, at cognition, and they do a PCA, and instead of listing like calling their principal components principal component one and two and three and four, what they do is they give their principal components names that somehow represent the direction that that principal component, the polarization of that principal component. So you'd have something like friendliness as your component one, and uh, something like uh, uh, problem solving as component two. And then you simplify what is a multidimensional thing into these single words that don't at all represent the multidimensionality anymore. And they're, they're that a short, they're makes a shorthand. things real confusing. They're yeah. meant as a shorthand is what you're saying. They're, they're meant as a shorthand, but they could have just used arbitrary category numbers right. or car- category names without encountering the problem of uh the connotation that that shorthand then has over the whole thing right yeah yeah you'd almost be better off just calling them like bob and steve exactly like why not (laughs) it serves the same purpose eco strategy one yeah that's my problem especially because these things are not at all mutually exclusive Exclusive. because you can have a herbivorous thing that is large and also by excluding snakes I feel it's completely arbitrary to the point that it really serves not a lot of purpose. I mean, what what I'm what what I when I see this paper, what I ask myself: the decision to exclude snakes is completely arbitrary, and I don't understand it. On a yeah, it's on, just based on the database. Yeah, it's just based on the database. So the database, me, the the decision to exclude it from the database is where the question should lie, and. I have no explanation for that. Even though that's not what the paper says, what they excluded. That's not why the paper says... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's not the reason that the paper gives of why they are excluding snakes. Which is a problem for me. If someone asked, Gabriel, someone asked you to to do something with, you know, a survey of all of the known dinosaurs and and you left out birds. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that is a big thing. If you're going to talk about all dinosaurs, you must include birds. 
Yeah. I think a lot of this is, and we were discussing a little bit before that we started recording, it goes to back to, you know, old school of thought based pre, I think it's pre-cladistics almost. Uh, where you like take this group because they're tradition. not like the other lizards, they must therefore be excluded from the other lizards. Even though there are a lot but of lizards, there are actually even like though them. there are lots of legless lizards <laughs> yes. that really behave very similarly. In, I mean, if you go and look at Leosis or um, Leolis, yeah. Well, that's you know, what I said was that yeah, which are gecko hunting geckos. If they look like snakes, they behave like snakes. Show a picture of a Lealis to any, you know, like to a hundred people who are not specialists and ask them to identify what it is. <laughs> yeah, and you have yeah, yeah I, you have stuff I, like big up pits, uh, even yeah. even regular legless lizards of uh, you know ophisaurus, which are, you know, by all. Intense and, yes. and, and, and yes, they behave like a snake because right. they yeah. lack limbs. They behave exactly like a snake. There, some of them are crepuscular, very much snake-like in the way they behave. What is it? Why? For me, the problem that I have it's, with this is that did that, and what is the real? What is the real uh, contribution? I, I guess of this where you, where you draw those lines, it is totally arbitrary. I mean, uh, yeah. It's all, it's all like, I guess you could, you could almost argue the same. Like if I said, let's talk about all fish, <laughs> you could make the argument that, okay, well, we also have to talk about tetrapods, you know, all tetrapods, therefore being a subset of, uh, but you know, I mean, yeah, like, but, but, but we're not comparing how the problem that I have with this is that they choose to compare the way some groups behave, even though. Uh, some many 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 members of those group behave exactly like the other group they're ignoring. Yeah, right, right, right. So, Absolutely, yeah. You yeah. know, this is the problem that I have. What what is the reason they give in the paper, Mark? Could you could you? I just want to. I just want to. Before I read that to you, I want to point out that there are currently three thousand sixty three species of snakes described. <laughs> so they have limited themselves, as I will read in a second to around a little bit less than half of all currently described reptiles. Okay. Which is bonkers. Anyway, so... <clears throat> and none of, them are say, uh, none of them are herbivorous either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, they have here, while lizards are paraphyletic as snakes evolved from them... We chose to omit snakes from our database because they share many apomorphies that make them ecologically and morphologically very different from all lizards. But that was, and you're saying that wasn't really a choice. They just weren't in the database. They weren't That's in the database. That's and what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't, I don't really understand why that was the case in the original database. But anyway, they were using this database to try and do the things. Um, and oh, I think I think we I may that, have been mis- that, incorrect. That clip of Samuel L. Jackson, you know, on the on the plane with the snake. You know? <laughs> I think I think it's actually that there are six thousand one hundred fifty-one lizard species currently recognized, and there are three thousand seven hundred snake species. So if you add those together, you get to the roughly ten thousand squamate species that are currently described. I think that's about right. That make makes more sense. Yeah, but yeah, the, the problem. Can we say why that statement is a little bit uh, 
it makes your ears. Well, I mean, obviously, they didn't just evolve from lizards. Right. They, I mean, they evolved within lizards exactly. as lizards yes. to stay lizards exactly. that are just very whole, specialized like I mean, lizards. What we're saying is, is that whole dichotomy doesn't really exist. That's a well, completely yeah. human yeah, and, invention. And, and let me just say, yeah. I, I mean, snakes are specialized lizards in the same way that geckos are specialized lizards. I mean, you could argue that geckos have more specializations compared to other lizards than snakes do right. because the snake morphology and all that repeats in other lizards. Because, so, but because minus, we don't, minus some skull right. yeah. differences and stuff. But there's a there's there's a lot of things that repeat that are more specialized in geckos, for example. So I don't know. Yeah, mm. yeah, I yeah. agree. There's uh, there's just a lot about this paper that I think you probably have to read it in a huge amount of detail, which unfortunately we haven't had time for to really try and understand it. But some things just stand out as being weird. Like for example, the herbivory category. So herbivory is some of the herbivorous um, ecological group thing is relatively large diurnal terrestrial and scansorial species whose diet includes substantial amounts of plant matter, either as omnivores or herbivores. <laughs> So I, now if you look at the map, you see that, of course, I look at Madagascar as the first thing that I look at in any map. Um, and Madagascar is bright red for herbivory. <laughs> but are there really herbivorous lizards in Madagascar? There are, okay, so... They're talking about if you include, right? Is if you include omnivores, then Apurids are the only, like, eh... I think they're actually including felsuma, which are nectarivores, hmm. and also sometimes eat pollen. And many geckos also eat sap. But that's many yes. geckos and everywhere. But that's <laughs> not necessarily their primary. Yeah, and so do anolis. Their... So do anolis. And exactly. So... Yeah. So if you start to be Ugh. so broad, it becomes a so bit weird. So what happens if you're here... a small, primarily herbivorous lizard? Where do you fall? So here's. Here's the thing. We have to read this paragraph that comes after their um, their categories to sort of understand how archetype analysis deals with this. So here, I'll read. I'll read forth. The names we chose for our seven archetypes are not inclusive. Thus, while all lizards belonging to the quote unquote large archetype are large sized, not all large sized lizards belong to this archetype. And while all nocturnal species are active at night, not all species that are active at night were assigned to this archetype. Which, to me, is like, so, what, what? Even more arbitrary, <laughs> right? Like, they makes it even more arbitrary. It's even more arbitrary, yeah. yeah I don't understand yeah. it. It's very, it's very weird. I don't understand this at all. Um, but it's, it's a thing. And... <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I'm just going to say yeah. before we move on, snakes are lizards. Can we all move on from that? Yeah. yeah. The same way that birds are dinosaurs yeah. and we are primates. Can we all move on? I, Thank yes. you. Yes. I think I think that there's there is value in trying to understand the way that ecomorphs co-evolve because you do have habitats assembled from various different groups coming together 
um, in a single location and dividing themselves into niches. If your niche is occupied, you find it harder to colonize. So there is value in understanding the way that these that species groups Definitely. and species assemblages yeah, but, form. We've talked There's, here many times about anoles, and they are a big yeah. example of that. The eco exactly. There's clearly right. some 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 issues with how they carried that out, though. With how they structured exactly. This, you know. I think I think that it's a it's a really interesting thing to pursue, and this is a way to try to pursue it. Yeah. But at, at at least from a cursory overview of the paper, it seems like it has not quite um, been possible for them to really get at the thing that they're trying to get at because of the way that this particular analysis tries to break down those different archetypes into such a small set if you're only dividing your your lizards into seven possible different groups well, and not only that and you're immediately and without, you're without ignoring snakes, snakes. You're discounting a third couldn't, of couldn't this, I, I would have had a better time with this paper if they would have segmented it in various publica publications like let's deal with gecottons for example first and then take each section yeah. of lizards including yeah. snakes because if, yeah. if you're going to take because an arbitrary geckos, yeah Geckos alone, you could divide into at least four different groups. Yes, yeah. right or more. Yeah, you're, yeah. So I don't know. It, it seems like it's um, it's too reductionist for me. I agree. Yeah. So an interesting paper, worthy of reading, possibly worthy of response. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Insert Debbie Downer face. <laughs> we move on to hashtag herpers, the bit where we talk about incredible herpetologists, both from history and eventually we're going to talk more about living uh, herpers, but right now we are trying to go or talk through the coolest um, herpetologists, uh, female herpetologists who are uh, unfortunately no longer with us. And this episode, we're going to talk about Dr. Margaret Stewart, who went by Meg. Um, Dr. Margaret, Dr. Stewart, we'll call her Dr. Stewart was born in 1927. She, uh, unfortunately, I don't have dates for these, but she went to what is now UNC Greensboro, but is, was formerly the Women's College of the University of North Carolina. Um, she then got her master's degree at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and went on then thereafter to get her PhD in Cornell. She is most famous for having, or, well, I don't know about most famous, but her probably most known single work is a book called The Amphibians of Malawi, which uh, I've had in my hand before. Unfortunately, I don't own it, but I would like to. Um, it's quite a, quite a beautiful book. But straight after finishing her PhD, she joined the university at Albany, uh, in the state, which is the State University of New York, better sometime known, in the 1950s. Better known up here as SUNY. SUNY. Yeah. And um, she became a professor at, that, uh, at SUNY 
later on at some time. In, the, in 1979, she became the president of the American Society of Ichthyology and Herpetology. And she was a super, super active herpetologist um, and published um, really a lot. So she worked on lots of different frogs, including the frogs of Jamaica and uh, some things in Costa Rica. But the most, the, 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 the one subject that she published the most on was actually Eleutherodactylus cocky. So from her work, we know all kinds of stuff about Eleutherodactylus cocky, like um, we have a, a way, yeah, cocky. Because that's how they're called, uh, cockies. Cockies, yeah. No, they're sure. called cockies in Puerto Rico. It's a native, native name. They call it cocky because of the sound. So it's cocky, not cocky. Uh, Anomatopoeia. <laughs> Exactly. I see. Coqui. Yeah, coqui. All right. Well, you have one, Mark. You should yeah, know, you should know this, Mark. Well, you have one. I do know, but I was pronouncing the name as though, you know, I think people would also pronounce it cockeye because no! it looks like... Uh... That's terrible. <laughs> My ears just bled. It, it <laughs> looks like an eponym. That's a coqui, um, okay? I understand. Col- All colloquial right. coqui. Uh, yeah, we're going to start. You started with the knowledge and now you're taking it too far. <laughs> <laughs> So um, she did a huge amount of work in in collaboration with various different people, also several uh, single author papers talking about the distribution of these frogs in Puerto Rico, their um, how they fertilize their eggs, the way that they um, the the development of the eggs, the, so staging of the various uh, of the embryo because they are direct developers um how they have their parental care she published i think something like 40 papers on eleutherodactylus cocky alone which is crazy and um actually for her work even though she already had a, a doctorate from cornell she was awarded a an honorary second doctorate um by the university of mayaquez is that how it's pronounced? Maya Quez. Wes, yes. Sure. Uh, in 1996. So she later went on to retire in 1997. Um, throughout her life, she was heavily involved in the Nature Conservancy and um, was uh, especially in their, in their Eastern branch, was a very, very active member. She was, I think, awarded the oak oak leaf award for um for her contributions to the nature conservancy and upon her death she um bequeathed them a great deal of or or a large sum apparently uh, in 2005 she was awarded the um robert k johnson award for uh, excellent contributions in herpetology and um, from 2003 onwards, she had established the um, Margaret M. Stewart Graduate Scholarship in Biodiversity, Conservation, and Policy. And apparently she was also very involved in the establishment of biodiversity, conservation, and policy as a course at SUNY, um, which I believe is still running, unless I'm much mistaken. Um, the American Society of Ichthyology and Herpetology also has a Margaret M. Stewart Achievement Award for Excellence in Ichthyology or Herpetology, which is awarded to tenured professors between five and 15 years as professors. Um, and 
she sadly died of pancreatic cancer after a long battle with it uh, in 2006. But until um, until the lead up to her death, she was uh, still attending seminars and thesis defenses and things and really committed um, to academia, not just from the inside, but also from a supervisory perspective. Apparently, she saw her students as her greatest achievement and not her research itself, which is uh, excellent. And um, I've read that she was seen as an as a great role model by many um, women researchers who were going through um, SUNY for the long period of time that she was based there. She started in the 50s and was there until her death in 2006. So 56 years at SUNY. Which is incredible. Uh, and she has one frog named after her so far, which I unfortunately don't have the genus name of here, but it's uh, called Stuart's Puddle Frog. So I guess it's a, um, one of our Western African frogs that she herself collected. So so all the, most of what we know about is a sort of actuoscopy we owe it to her. I think that may actually be the case. Yeah, um, she really... Cracked the cracked the case on uh, Luther Daxler's cocky, and uh, the way that she seems to have uh, approached them is really interesting. Going through question by question, all these different kinds of things that you can um, that you can study in a single system to get to get a huge and better picture of them. I mean, really establishing them as a as a study system um, in their native range, especially, which is really cool. So right now, of course, co uh, the the cocky is, I suppose, one of the most widespread frogs on the planet because it's been spread so widely by the uh, botanical trade. So yeah. it's also um, really good at eating other frogs. Yeah. I suppose that's true. Although they don't get very big. Not a small, tiny frog. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the Cuban tree. You're frog. Cuban, the Cuban tree. Oh yeah. yeah. Osteopilus. Yeah, osteocephalus. Yeah, Oste yeah, yeah. Osteopilus. Sorry. Yeah. No, that was my yeah. bad. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, cocky are, are probably tied with uh, um, Xenopus for how widespread they are. Yeah, the, oh, yeah. They're little guys, and you're right. They hide in like tiny, flower tiny, pots tiny, 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 yeah, 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 Always yeah. in bromeliads. I mean, if you yeah. go into a botanical garden uh, uh, anywhere outside the U.S. especially, and you find little frogs in the bromeliads, it's almost always going to be a, a cocky. <laughs> so, Yeah. So, uh, time to move on to our main topic for the night, which is to talk a little bit about cognition in reptiles. Uh, you may remember in episode 11, we mentioned that uh, lizard nerd Emily O'Brien had written to us via the, the email, squamatespod at gmail.com, um, to ask if we would talk about reptile cognition, snake cognition in particular, but reptile cognition in general. And we were like... Oh, that's nice of you to ask, but we don't know shit about that topic. Um, well, little has changed since then, but we decided we'd give it a stab <laughs> I anyway. I was about to say. Uh, <laughs> well, I was, we, uh, we definitely have some probably unfounded opinions. We, uh, have, some, we have some thoughts. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kick off the discussion by talking about, first of all, a paper that just came out, which I was actually going to put into the breaking newt section, but it fits so nicely here that I... Thought I'd put it here, and um, and also a, a chapter in a book. But we'll get to that in a second. So, 
Um, Birgit Shaboa et al. published in Animal Behavior an article called Precocial Juvenile Lizards Show Adult-Level Learning and Behavioral Flexibility. So this paper was, this study was done on Teliqua skinkoides, which is the blue tongue skink, yep. right? Yep. yep. Yeah. And, um, and blue tongue skinks exhibit parental care and have um, relatively complex social groups, which is actually true of a lot of Australian skinks. Um, the the short-tailed ones whose names I've forgotten come to mind. Shinglebacks? No, no, not the shinglebacks. Well, shinglebacks are obviously the most famous because they mate for life and then they're... Yeah, that's where I was was going with that. Yeah. Um, But the other ones, uh, what are they called? They have Uh, hilarious names. The uh, The ones that look all spiny. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're a Eugene... uh, It's an EU... Yeah, Egernia, Egernia. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I knew. It, so, I knew. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> Egernia also apparently live in very complex family groups and stuff. So, generally, skinks are doing really interesting things compared to a lot of other lizards that we know. That that we know of, yes. Um, and what's interesting about the blue tongue skinks is that they have um, somewhat precocial development, so. They even in the young individuals, they are showing um, the same kind of or very similar behavior to the adults, which is kind of cool. Um, so, what they did in this paper was to study the way that these juveniles, the, the, the juveniles of this lizard, which are precocial, um, if, if they differ substantially from adults in their ability to perform uh, relatively complex behavioral tasks. And what they found is that they do, they, they achieve exactly the same level or, or, or statistically the same level of learning as adults do. Now, in mammals, you don't expect that. You expect that young mammals and also young birds are substantially worse at performing a task when they are young than when they're old because they don't have, they, they haven't experienced as much. They haven't gained the ability to learn um, in the same, at the same speed and problem solve at the same rate. But in these lizards, you don't have a difference between adults and juveniles, which indicates that they're doing something special in their, um, well, either it indicates that the adults are very stupid, which is not the case because they are doing um, relatively complex tasks and they are demonstrating some behavioral flexibility as well. Um, and so it probably indicates rather that the juveniles have somehow a much more active brain um, or a much better brain for problem solving and for, for learning tasks than is typical of young animals. So that's I wanted to start that uh, discussion with this paper because it sort of sets the scene for our understanding of what lizards are capable of. Because experiments like this one, which I, I don't remember specifically what they actually did in the study, um, but but there is literature on animals or on, on reptiles being trained to perform tasks 
that would remind you surprisingly of uh, of mammal experiments. So for example, pushing a button to get a food reward or um, navigating a maze, which is very commonly done in lab mice or you know that kind of um, that kind of experimentation that we associate with animals that we have a greater empathy with and that we think we can read the emotions of, you have the same, basically the same level of uh, ability in reptiles, and yet somehow we think that reptiles are uh, less intelligent. That's like the default thing. Do you think, I, I feel like there's a historical aspect to that. Like, you know, there's a Victorian sort of attitude about reptiles being lesser lower organisms and therefore there's there's nothing going on so why why bother to look well yeah mm-hmm. it goes back to calling the reptile brain and all those things and right and, and those it, things still you still hear yeah. but that uh you know um i i think that um it, it comes from an anthropocentric uh, right. point of view right where the pinnacle think, of evolution is us which is not true I, I think for a long time we just didn't look at all because we kind of assumed there was nothing going on you know and I think we're finding out that that's not necessarily true and yes. I think I said the last time we we had sort of teased this conversation I think we're that that people are, are human beings are really bad at at reading intelligence that isn't like human intelligence we we don't yeah you know you know we don't have Without a framework a we don't have a framework for what it's like to be a skink <laughs> we, we're, we're so, even bad at reading intelligence that is like human intelligence so imagine how true, bad it's for right, the other right because tell that to the primates their intelligence is similar to ours and we're still pretty bad mostly i think there's a uh, an anthropocentric historical, traditional, and probably religiously based uh, uh, baggage that that, yes. that mm. doesn't allow uh, even until very recently, and I would say still influence in some degrees uh, some of. I th- I think what's really interesting about it is you know for a long time as a as a person who kept reptiles and amphibians. There's always this. Uh, y- you never want to be seen to be anthropomorphizing your 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 animals, and in the pursuit of not doing that, I think a lot of people may miss that there really is something going on there. There really is yeah. some level of cognition. Maybe it's or, not, or or you know, you know it, but you don't mention it. Because right. there are things that you know that they do, but sometimes you don't mention because they're like, no, it's you know, it's it's gonna be frowned upon if you say, right? For example, right. you're gonna be like, you're gonna be labeled as the crazy yeah. guy who. However, thinks that he's, you, you know. do. I think, I, and this is gonna sound funny, but I think a lot of that might be slightly changing because we become less tied down to tradition and religion and all that to so those views in one sense. But also, think funny enough. I think social media has helped a lot yes. because we now have so much video evidence of correct behaviors yes. that otherwise there's so much right there's so much more anecdotal evidence going on and, yeah and, you know I think it's it's right you want you don't want to be the person that says anecdotes it are you know anecdotes are not evidence but 
there's something there. there at at least something to look like yeah. to, to 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 at least yeah. investigate and something to discuss as yeah. well. Right, right. And I think you know, you see, for example, these these videos of people who are um, they put their hand into a cage, the lizard runs up, flips on it on its back, and or they they start to stroke the lizard and it flips on its back, and then they go on to stroke its belly, right, and. This this video, this one that I'm thinking of in particular, um, I believe it's a bearded dragon. Under normal under normal circumstances, these lizards will never flip on their backs. Right. They avoid it because it's a very vulnerable position. And there was some discussion at at, at a time. This was several years ago now about uh, whether this was submissive behavior within or, these lizards, and or they tonic were, uh, tonic immobility or something. Well, it, it it's too voluntary for it to be this tonic immobility because, you know, tonic immobility is you flip the lizard on its back and then it just stays there. Right. And they, they you know, you can do that to a human or a bunny rabbit or a cat or whatever. But you have to um, do it. You have to do it. It's an active thing. Whereas this is a lizard running up or, or you know, appears flipping to, over. Appears to voluntarily do this. Yeah. 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 And and then, you know, they scratch the tummy and the lizard flails with its arms and it's adorable. Um, but we still we need to realize that lizards, while they have a lot of the abilities that we associate with, you know, mammalian intelligence are fundamentally different in the right. way that they behave. So even if you recognize a, 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 a thing, so if you see these pictures of people scratching the head of a lizard and it closes its eyes, there's a lot of discussion as, is that stress or is it appreciation? Because lizards close their eyes and gape when they're stressed. Yeah, right. And lizards, when you stroke their heads, will close their eyes and gape. Is that a stress response? Or is that a relaxation and i'm actually enjoying it right. now i believe that the the scratching sensation the satisfaction of having an itch scratched probably transcends all terrestrial life <laughs> like, yeah yeah you can scratch the neck of a bird and it also does the whole like yeah. and there are great pictures uh, there are great i just saw a gif of an owl the other day where the person put their hand out and started doing the scratching motion, and the owl ran over, yep. and then put its head there to be scratched, right. which and it I've wouldn't do if that was some I've kind of stress response. Seen, you mentioned bearded dragons, and I've definitely seen behaviors in bearded dragons where they appear to be seeking out and wanting those kinds of behaviors. Yeah. So I, yeah. I you know, that's not that again. That's anecdotal. And that's not hard evidence. But exactly. But I yeah. think there's something to it. Well, there's something and, to look at. That's what I'm saying. That at at yeah. least is something that we it needs to be investigated. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I think that there's you know it's the sort of thing where we can think a lot about you know is this response are we just anthropomorphizing this or do we have evidence that suggests that this is really something that the animals are seeking out and are liking and if you're taking care of a snake you know. And you're and you're giving the snake cuddles, and then people are like, "Oh, you know, does a snake love you, or you know, is this uh, emotionally somehow an attachment with a snake?" Probably not. Snakes like body heat. You are a good source of body heat, right? On the other hand, uh, you know, snakes do certainly recognize individuals, 
and are able to adjust their behavior based on those individuals and will, you know, many docile snakes will not strike at their owners, even if they can't see them very well, they'll not strike them because they have associated that. So my snake, for example, um, she will, if I'm going to feed her, I will sometimes scratch her because she's buried in the soil. I'll scratch her and she'll come out and then I'll feed her. But sometimes I'll scratch her because I'm going to pull her out and she needs to be visible for it. And never does she actually go to strike my hand in any of those interactions. Well, because she's recognizing that I'm not the food source. You know, you bring up something else that's interesting is that many, many times over the years, I've witnessed what you could describe as the, as a, like a sort of Pavlovian sort of feed response thing where the reptile yeah. or amphibian has associated me opening the cage with right. food. Oh yes. Right. It happens. I, very I mean, so that, fish right do there, that. that's something right. Even fish do that. And that's something that's there's, there's some level of cognition happening there for that to, for that to be possible. Yeah. 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 yeah I, so that go ahead. Go on, go on. No, I, uh, I was just uh, going to say that I had I had a a, a a basilisk when I was a kid. And I remember I used to shake the uh, I, I used to give him pellets like like fish pellets, and I, I used to sh I shake it and it will cling to the top of the terrarium. <laughs> Wait, yep. he knew that that's what it was happening. So yeah, um, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there's a huge amount that you can actually train reptiles to do as well. And we saw in the last episode, we were discussing these dart frogs that have been trained to do certain tasks, which is remarkable because, you know, you're talking about lizards here, but frogs are fundamentally not something that I would consider intelligent animals. They, they're very bad at hitting their food when they're striking for it. Yes. They're, you know, they will they will literally jump against a glass wall until they've broken their entire face. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're just they're they're not very bright animals, but they can be trained to do tasks, um, which suggests that they are able to do. You know, there's this cognitive ability I mean, in not, there. Not that I'm arguing that a frog is ever going to do my taxes, but I do think that, like I said before, we have so little, we, we are so bad at determining what intelligence actually even is, even yes. in human beings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Who the hell knows what's going on and, in there? Like, and, and, <laughs> I, and I probably think that so, there's also probably a lot of variation within species in these groups as to how yeah. that intelligence. Uh, uh, you, you know, know working, yeah. you know, we, you bring up aneurysms, and I would say that. Uh, in keeping a cane toad, that there's there's more going on in a cane with the cane toad brain than with you know axolotls. Axolotls yeah. are especially stupid. I mean, uh, you know, you say that, but I I have trained axolotls to eat from a dish. So uh, well, we have we have lungfish here, and lungfish yep. are yeah. I mean, lungfish are essentially tetrapods. Yeah, yeah. Um, they are remarkably intelligent. They learn things really, really quickly. Yep. And also, they eat a lot of food. Um, I wanted to mention the fact that there's a book by Franz de Waal, which is called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Mm -hmm. um, and it's been sitting on my shelf for a really long time. I'd really like to get to read it. I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, but apparently, it helps us deal with this question. Um, 
But on the topic of how smart animals are, I wanted to bring up um, chapter eight in the Oxford Handbook of Comparative Evolutionary Psychology, which is entirely, uh, I mean, it's called Cold-Blooded Cognition, Reptilian Cognitive Abilities. It's by Anna Wilkinson and Ludwig Huber. And they talk through basically everything that was known in 2012 mm. of reptilian cognition. It is really impressive. And I think the entire chapter is available from Google Books. So I, the link will be in the show notes. Okay, cool. Um, but basically, in the summary at the end, they write... The data that is available suggests that the investigation of cognitive processes in reptiles is a richly productive exercise. There is evidence of efficient learning in the spatial, physical, and social domains, as well as examples of behavioral flexibility in food acquisition tasks and play behavior. Yeah. So it's really cool that they, you know, the literature shows that a lot of the things that we associate with birds and mammals reptiles are also doing they might not have the same kind of facial expressions as we expect they might not necessarily give the same sort of cues but they are definitely there's a lot going on inside their heads and we should really study and learn more about what they are actually capable of it, it seems to me like like it's only within recent times i was about to say that, that, yeah. okay <laughs> that anyone has paid any attention to this that that uh, it, it, to, right? Am I, am I wrong there? Like it seems. I like mean, that's, I mean, you know, you know, if, you know we, we refer to the the hind brain as the reptile or the lizard brain, as though that's the only thing that they're capable of. Um, you know, the, the 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 part of the brain that regulates itself entirely autonomously. Um, yeah. But that's not at all the case. You know, they they also have very um, sometimes extremely complicated uh, uh, social interactions that are very stereotyped and um, and, and, and they're and, able to adapt to all kinds of different situations. So, so. I, I, and I was, we know so little, even about basic right. thing of very common species that we just yeah. barely starting to scratch the surface. And that is about all animal groups, not just, not, not just squamates, but all animal groups. Um, uh, Crocodilians in particular yeah. are super smart. Crocodilians are yeah. extremely smart. Yeah. The, they, do, you, do you recall that study that uh, with the the sticks and the birds? Uh, yeah. That was a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. With the crocodiles. But it's putting, very funny because yeah. some birds use the, do the same thing in reverse. I mean, they don't lure the crocodiles, but some <laughs> birds put put bread out. Oh yeah. If they, no, give they, it, if the they find bread, they they put out bread to catch the fish herons, that come herons. to eat the bread. Herons yeah. Have, yeah. do that. Several species of herons, but I think night herons in particular are, are, and there's, are good at doing There's that. definitely been play documented in crocodilians. Uh, I think I think Darren wrote something because I did a comic with him on the crocodile. Uh, I think it was alligators eating watermelons. Uh, <laughs> stuff like that. No, uh, I mean, they're, they're extremely smart animals. Yeah. And, 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 well, and I was going to say varanids too. I mean, yeah. monitor lizards. Yes, uh, there are there are great people on Instagram who keep uh, monitor lizards and demonstrate their cognitive abilities on a daily regular basis. basis. Yes, and some of those accounts are bonkers. Yes, like the things that they're training their lizards to do are really impressive. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that so. I think social media, in a way, uh, 
it just yeah and, it does and, make us more aware yes and yes. it makes it also easier to document it uh when i was and this is unrelated but it's kind of the same when 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 uh, Michael Harvey and I wrote the paper about T-head morphology and we have to look at the whole, we were trying to describe the whole family in all its aspects. So we were talking about T-heads have this crazy social uh, movements and displays that have been, basically nothing is written about, but they're super complex. And they live in this, some species live in these interesting groups and they have these interesting relationships. Nothing is written about it in the literature. You notice it. Uh, as an as a, as a observer, but nothing has been written. And we decided to talk a little bit about it. Some of the references that we made during the paper was linking some YouTube videos where you can see the uh, display. Yeah. And I think that's super useful now because it's, it's one tool that we can add to the repertoire of things that we can observe yeah. and use it yeah. as, a, as, a, yeah. as a part of the evidence. Yeah, the single case studies really help to, I mean, they don't obviously replace your very carefully designed uh, experimental designs where you're able to specifically test certain aspects of the um, of the cognition, but they are useful in order to see what exactly is possible and, you know, get those those anecdotes together yep. can make data sets. Or to call attention to something that should be looked yeah. up on with yeah. more precision. And I think... Yeah. I think it sounds like we're we're still at the point where that hasn't happened. Like there hasn't been a lot of focused research on on cognition in reptile. Well, really, cognition in animals. Anything, but yeah, yeah. There, I, well, I mean, you know, there's a huge amount done in in mammals, like but whole even university even within mammals, it's just in a few species, though. There is the, the, yeah yeah no that's true yeah there is right. a ton of mammals that we don't know anything yeah, about I, I was uh, watching this episode about animal cognition I think it was in a documentary not that long ago and they were saying how we're just scratching the surface on most species we know nothing we only recently in the past decade is when we started to learn about how complex bird cognition and we were talking about reptiles yeah. you cannot take the birds out talking about what we were talking about earlier part of the cognition of how Absolutely. smart they are and so incredibly smart and we're not even talking about but primate level yeah. cognition so I, I was actually just watching something as well about bird cognition and how you know like new caledonian crows can do yeah. object object permanence and you know stuff that that chimps don't necessarily do well, or that, exactly. or that human children even don't necessarily do exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, delayed gratification yeah. tests and stuff like that. I, I don't think cooperation. Even, yeah. Uh, even stuff like cooperation yeah. and everything, which are thought uh, things that we thought were only human until very recently. What I love about these no. studies is that a lot of them say, "Oh, we thought this only occurred in humans," and and this is back to what I was saying earlier <laughs> that we have this backpack, back this this. Lo this baggage. Uh, baggage is the word that I was trying to look for. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this baggage of, um, I think it's tradition and religion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. Anthropocentric. Like, yeah. We we say, oh, we, we only thought that humans could do that, but we never looked. We, no. we never bothered to, you know. I mean, <laughs> so it's, yeah. it, you know. We, we assumed that for because of tradition, but not because, you know, nobody really tested it. Yeah. So I think it sounds like we're we're large roughly in agreement here that there's uh, probably more going on than just base level. Yeah, there's certainly more going on than the than the you know the average layperson would think. 
And I, I think that's the key. Like there is, we don't know how much they actually have going on, but it's certainly more than any person that you would ask on the street would actually think. And, and I'll even extend that to, you know, we, we mentioned briefly fish and I think that's true there too. I think that oh, for sure. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, I, I think it's true of a lot of organisms that we take for granted, so to speak, and, and think of as, you know, like that whole thing about, oh, fish have a three second memory. That's clearly not true. And you can train goldfish. You can train train goldfish. I've seen goldfish trained on, again, on, on YouTube, you know, to, to like ring a bell and, you know, uh, go through hoops. And and this is one of those subjects that I would tell, that would tell people expect to see a lot more coming on in the, in the following years. Like in 10 years, we're going to be at a completely different level where we're at now. Because I see papers yeah. coming out all the time, and you know about how much we, we, we talked about the one of a dart frogs recently. I've seen papers similar talking about all the cognitive abilities of anolis also in recent years, and and all the work that's been done on varanids. So yeah. I am sure a lot more of that is, is well. To and come. I think we're only we're only. I mean, we there have been a few studies done with bearded dragons, and I think we're only learning about that because of their like huge popularity as, as pets. pets. Yeah. <laughs> no one yeah. would have any idea or it'd be, you know, who would, who would look into that otherwise? Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't physically be possible because they're only established in the, in, in the lab from, from pet groups. So, yeah. you know, from the captive trade. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, we're learning, we're learning a really large amount. Uh, I was always impressed by how incredibly intelligent my Felsuma was. Yep. Because they are very smart animals. And, um, they, I mean, they don't always look it, but they're always scheming somehow. <laughs> so. I imagine the Felsuma going like a ring in his hands, going like this. I'm going to give him the yes, worst bite, bite. imaginable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think we mentioned before when we were talking about the dart frog paper about how I think if you're arboreal or semi-arboreal, that that might be a driving force for animals that have to build mental maps in multiple dimension, you know, in three dimensions. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I have a suspicion that that might be a driving factor with a lot of that. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, think you know, only by only by studying a much broader range of animals will we start to understand what the what the interplay is between the ecology of the species and its cognitive ability, and if that is actually shaping its ability to evolve into new domains. You know, right? If you're if you're somehow evolved to only, or if you're somehow super adapted to orient in the horrific habitat that is the desert then you go into a jungle your orientation is going to be completely different because you can't use any of the the cues that you used to use and we haven't um, even mentioned uh turtles and tortoises which can be uh very yeah. smart so yeah yeah i wonder there too i wonder you know we mentioned the study about precocial learning you know there is an extremely long-lived group of animals and what kind of things are going on there? Like, you know, is this an animal that is born with most of what it needs or do they acquire experience through that long? Well, I know from life? experience that you can train uh, adult turtles, red-footed turtles in my case, to come to you 
when they live outside. Yeah. Um, and and to I know when you're offering food from a distance to here for your call. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I used to do that to my. Oh, I, ha I have a friend who has a dog tame sulcata that will go out. And yeah, sulcatas are, are, are well known for. Um, yeah. Or becoming like dogs when yeah, they yeah you can let it out yeah. it'll go do its business and it'll come back inside like they're it's it's that smart so <laughs> excellent uh, yeah I say that but it also ate a mop once so I mean I don't know <laughs> <laughs> well but so do dogs it's not that yeah. different yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely true I mean dogs will eat all kinds of terrible things so all right well I think I think we've uh, arrived at an interesting consensus there. So, uh, a good discussion, a good discussion, and that, my good friends, brings us to the end of the show. I hope you liked episode twelve. It's been fun. Um, hey, Ethan, where can one find you on the internet? I am uh, at Black Mud Puppy on pretty much every social media, and I also run the website Nudist N E W T I S T dot com. <laughs> and Gabriel? I'm at Serpent Illus. Uh, uh, that is at Serpent, like ser Snake Serpent. And Illus, like Illustrator, at all social media. And I have my website, GabrielUgeto.com. Excellent. You can find me at MarkShirts.com. Uh, also, you could just Google my name, M-A-R-K-S-C-H-E-R-Z. I'm pretty much the only one so that makes things real easy i have a red bubble shop now and you can buy stickers and things and i mean gabriel also has a red bubble shop but he's had one for a while and mine is <laughs> new so <laughs> um yeah you can buy my frog poster and stuff and uh yeah so uh that's that's pretty much that and you can follow the podcast well, you can get the, the episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, except if you use Spotify, because our podcast episodes are too long for Spotify. Sorry. Uh, uh, on, uh, well, on all podcast apps, you can find us on Twitter at Squamates Pod, on Facebook, Squamates Pod, Instagram, Squamates Pod. You can email us if you have questions or feedback or nice thing to say or mean things to say. Uh, email us squamatespod at gmail.com and or if you are if, in fact a cog uh, a, a lizard that has been listening and would like to chime exactly. in about cognition exactly um <laughs> If you have the time, we would love it if you would leave us a review on whatever podcast app that you use, because uh, that apparently allegedly helps people to find the show. And uh, we're all about growing our audience and um, teaching more people about the wonders that are reptiles and amphibians. And with that, we would like to just say to you all... Hakuna 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 Hakuna